Father, we come to you now as your people gathered together to hear you speak to us from your word. We long to hear our shepherd speak to us and our redeemer speak to us. And we know that every word of scripture is breathed out by you through the Holy Spirit, through the agency of man, so that what is recorded for us on the pages of this book is the exact word of God with all of your glory, with all of your authority, and with all of your sufficiency. And so we come and we bow ourselves and humble our hearts before you and ask you, Holy Spirit, to be our teacher, to give us understanding so that we would have spiritual eyes to see and ears to hear, and that you would stir up in us all of those spiritual affections that move our will to live for you and to fight the fight of faith and to press on in the battle with our own sin, the world, and the devil until we reach our heavenly home, even as we just sang, and hear, hopefully, longingly, those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. And it is to that end we pray in your name, Jesus. So go ahead and open up your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 6. Yes, we are coming back uh, to Revelation. We took uh, quite a while in the book of Daniel. And the goal there, as I've mentioned before, was to set a context for some of the things that we're looking at in uh, Revelation chapter 6. And not only Revelation chapter 6, but really for all of Revelation, for Daniel set out for us, at least what we're arguing here and what we would hold to, is the seventh, or 70th week, so seven years of God's final plans for this present age that are centered on his wrapping up his covenant promises and purposes for the nation of Israel in this present age. And so with that, which was uh, stirred up or sparked because of the first horse that went out, the beginning of the unleashing of the opening of the seals of Christ uh, in Revelation chapter 6. And so having done that, we come back now to continue to look at what has been known as the four horsemen, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the, the beginning of the judgments of God on the present age. And of course, as we looked at Daniel chapter 9, and as we consider these judgments of God, and particularly as we move forward and see how these judgments in their specifics are unleashed on the world and how Israel is going to play a role in that, we are reminded of world events. And I was asked last week, I think it was last week, of why uh, we didn't emphasize more some of the events that are happening right now in Israel as she has experienced uh, amazing atrocities, as has been often noted by newscasters, not, atrocities not seen against them since World War II and the Holocaust. And of course, we did allude to that last week, but the reason for not mentioning that in specific in, in explaining the text is because we don't base our theology and our understanding of what's happening on world events. That's been an error that's happened by many throughout the history of the world. Things are going well, then they become post-millennial. Things are not going well, they become dispensational you know, and on down the line. And so we don't want to do that. We want to explain the text, understand the text, have our theology be derived from the text, and then use that as the lens through which we view the world and through which we discern and think about the events that are happening. Now, clearly, our understanding of the text is that God has a very specific intention for the nation of Israel, and we do see that playing out, and we see that as a very significant event in the divine a plan and providence for the nation when they became such again in 1948 and have been preserved and protected in that land. 
How that will play out, who knows? Only God knows. We can make guesses. We can make educated guesses based on what Scripture lays out for us as the character of those times. But only God knows. And we know that he is sovereign and that he will accomplish all of his good pleasure. And, of course, this event that God has, as it also has been noted many times, is that God's intentions for Israel, God's plans and purposes for Israel, are connected with his purposes for the world. And so we certainly see that, again, as we're going to walk through these judgments and the purposes and the plan of God for how he's going to unleash that on the world. So it will involve Israel, yes, will be at the center of that, but it will also involve all of the world, all of his image bearers. So as we come to the text this morning, we're going to look at verses 3 through 8, the last three of the four horsemen, and then in several weeks uh, we'll pick it up with uh, the fifth seal and the martyrs under the throne. But let's begin this morning by reading uh, our passage, so beginning in verse 3 of Revelation. Well, you know what, let's just begin at verse 1 and read verse 1 through verse 8. And then we'll come back and pick it up from where we left off. So, Revelation chapter 6. And then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a voice of thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse. He who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not damage the oil and the wine. And when the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked and behold, an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. And authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. And so we have what is, again, being popularly called the four horsemen of the apocalypse made uh, put into the imagination, as it were, of people through a painting I put it up before. I mispronounce his name, but it was a, a famous painting in which it was this presentation of these four agents of God's judgment and four initial agents of God's uh, judgment on the world, riding these riders riding on their horse to execute and unleash the beginning of his anger and his holy justice. Interestingly, of these four horsemen, as we noted last week, the, the one who is on a white horse carrying a bow when he, going out to conquer uh, is a picture of one who is going out and, according to the providence of God, is gaining power, is increasing authority, is spreading uh, a conquering uh, reality, a building of a kingdom, as it were, 
as he rides this horse. And yet it is a kingdom that is accomplished or an expansion of his authority that is accomplished not through bloodshed, but through peace, actually. That's the symbolism of the white horse and of the bow, actually. He is a conqueror, indeed. It is a military picture. But the emphasis would seem to be that as he overtakes and goes out and expands territory, or as this expansion is taking place, that it is largely a bloodless victory. And we noted, just as a way in terms of our mindset, some near historical uh, examples of that, even in the early phases of Hitler went out and was supposedly one who was going out uh, for peace and only taking back what was rightfully German and doing so really with very little conflict in the very initial phases and seemed to be one who was actually going to follow through on his word. But as he had deceit in his heart and evil objectives, so it is with this first rider in a far more significant and global and impactful way. He is one who goes out and conquers territory in the name of peace, largely in a bloodless way, but there is deception in the heart, and that will change. We then come now to our second horse. The second horse that is called forth again by one of the living creatures, and he is associated then with the breaking of the second seal. And as you noted, there is a repetition of the pattern that will go primarily throughout each of the horses. That is, the seal is broken, uh, the living creature cries out with a voice and calls forth a horse and its rider. And each one of these horses has a different color, and the color corresponds to the nature of their ministry or their work, if you will. Interestingly, this pattern is not broken until the fifth seal and the seventh seal, where it changes to the Lord opening the seal, followed merely by a description of the effect that will come about. But here it is with the horse. It is the second seal, and a horse and rider are called forth. And he's called another horse. Another horse comes forth. And likely, I think the best way to see this is that they are coming in succession. Some want to say, would argue that they're not in succession one after another. It's really just four descriptions of a single time and single events. But... While they may be near in time, the indication seems to be here that there is a succession, and we'll see the certain logic of it as well as we go through, that there is one horse called, there is in his, uh, the events that come with him in the second and third and the fourth. And so here is another horse that is called through, signifying events that are to come, and his color is red, and the, the redness of the horse and the actions of its rider are giving the imagery of violence and destruction. The color actually could be described as fiery red, just as a point of interest here. The root of that term that is translated red here also is translated as fire. It's a different form, but the same root here. And so the idea here is of a fiery red horse, a color, a color, a bright color that has the color of blood. It's the same color in chapter 12, Three that's used to describe the dragon who is by himself marked by blood, a desire to destroy the people of God. Israel in chapter 12, moving into 13, is going to wage war against the saints and spill their blood in massive amounts. And so red has the idea here then of violence. But it's not so much the color of the horse that is the focus, but the him who sits upon it. Him who is granted authority to take peace from 
the earth, that men may slay one another or slaughter one another. And it was given to him a great sword. Now, as with the first writer and each of the writers, uh, they, you should not be too uh, eager to try to personalize it or make it too specific. Some want to see, for example, in this writer, either the Antichrist or the nation of Russia or so forth. But that's really missing the point of the metaphor here. He's representative. He's an angelic representative, essentially a personification of the things that God will accomplish through them in the execution of his judgment on the earth. And so here, he is then, again, to take peace from the earth. The suggestion here is then that there was a measure of peace on the earth, of course, which would fit with the first rider. That there was some measure of peace, but it was a superficial peace. It was short-lived, and this next wave of judgment is going to take that peace away. And how is he going to do it? He says here that they would, men would slay one another and a great sword was given to him. So he's taking the peace away through conditions of violence and bloodshed. Now this could be international violence, but it's been well noted. And the language strongly suggests that really the emphasis here is on internal strife. It is the character of violence that even within nations, it's widespread. It can include war, that kind of thing. But the emphasis seems to be on the conditions of widespread unrest and violence among communities within nations. And it's really in graphic terms that he describes this here. The the word that's translated as slay would probably be better translated as slaughter. It's a a graphic term. It's used most often in its history. It's very common in uh, ancient Greek literature and and is the translation of uh, the Old Testament Hebrew to refer to the slaughtering of an animal in a ritual context. And so it conjures up the idea of slaughter and of blood being offered in some cultic ritual or whatever. But it's a bloody, it's a bloody word. It's a graphic word. It's interesting that John, the writer John, is the only one to use this word. He uses it in chapter 3 of his epistle to refer to Cain slaughtering Abel, killing Abel in this bloody, murderous act of violence. He uses it in chapter 9 and verse 6 to speak of the, the saints who are below the throne who were slaughtered. He'll use it again later the epistle, but he uses it most often, interestingly, eight times in Revelation. Four of those times are in reference to Christ, who is the lamb that was slain, referring to the violence of his death, the graphic violence of his death. Here he uses it as a term to describe the kind of violence that men will enact against one another. One standard lexicon, uh, you know, talking about this word and its use in Greek literature and pagan cultures, it notes this, helpfully, uh, and I quote, It is a vivid and grisly expression for murder. Various nuances may be caught, and he lists such things as gruesomeness, undeserved fate, criminality, murder of kin, massacre after taking a city. Those are all various uses in Greek ancient literature. One commentator referring to its use here in Revelation 6 says this, It includes overtones of savagery. And that really is the idea and the picture that's being painted. Violence, savagery, mercilessness in the acts of violence, a complete disregard for human life. And of course, we've seen that again, paraded before us through the annals of history, but even through our 
current media and news situation, the atrocities coming out that many times commentators on TV won't even mention or talk about. They're just too bad. And certainly the images are horrible. And that is the kind of violence, the kind of mercilessness, the kind of hatred and slaughter that he's talking about here that will be more widespread throughout the world. It'll be characteristic of these times in large measure. And he continues to describe this by saying, men will slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Just a point of reference, the sword here, the, you know, there's different words for sword. It's the smaller sword used very often in hand-to-hand combat, uh, assassinations, uh, stabbing deaths, th- those kind of things. Here he calls it a great sword, a great sword. The idea here is to, to speak of the intensity of the violence, the, both its widespread nature but also its intensity, its seriousness, and the violence that will come as a result of this judgment. And it should be noted here, just briefly, that while the primary focus is on the violence of unregenerate men, that which will be spread around through the nations, it is almost certainly including those who are bearing the name of Christ who will be caught up in this. And again, we can use, use recent events with all of the, the, un, the unbelief and the pagan participants in the violence that's happening in the Middle East now and against Israel. There are Christian brethren there. There are Christian brethren in the Gaza Strip. There are Christian Palestinians. There are Christian Jews who are a part of this as well. And that's partly the idea here, is that it's widespread, but even God's people will be caught up in this as well, those who are called to faith during this time. And as a matter of fact, as already noted, when we get into the fifth seal, we're going to have martyrs beneath the throne. As we get into chapter 13 and the rise of the Antichrist, he's going to unleash war on the saints. So in the midst of all of this, God's people are suffering too. But the emphasis here is on the general violence and calamity and slaughter that is present among the world in general and nations in general. It's essentially the picture of a world in which the base desires of man's heart are given full sway and the restraints of conscience The restraints of the priority of family, the influence of the church, the restraints that would come through a government that has some modicum of righteousness and upholding what is good and just are all essentially removed. And there is no support of what is good and right, and the violence of man's heart is given a full expression. But notice here, this isn't merely the natural progression of man in sin, But this is a specific result of a sovereign decision of God. Go back to chapter 4 and look in the middle there. And here's the key thing to notice. Here's the key phrase. It's it's one word in the Greek, but it's a phrase here to notice. It says this. Look in the middle. And him who sat upon it, it was granted. It was granted. The word in Greek is sometimes referred to as a divine passive, not the word itself, but its form. In other words, this writer is granted something by another. He passively receives it. Here it is God is the one who is extending this authority. It is God who is doing this. It is God's judgment that is through this writer. He is the one who is sovereign over this violence. Some have a hard time with that. 
but scripture is not apologetic. If you read in Isaiah chapter, don't turn there, Isaiah 45 verse 7, speaking of God, he is the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. God stands sovereign over his creation to accomplish his purposes. And those purposes include not only salvation, but as we look into quite a bit, it also includes judgment. And that's what is being pointed to here. And this would have a particular significance to the original readers. And I want to highlight this because it has, it, it highlights something that's even broader than that. Now, these original readers are in the first century, the end of the first century A.D., of course, and one thing that was known and recognized and experienced and unique in the world situation, what has been referred to as the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. That was in the eyes of the Roman Empire and Roman rulers, one of the greatest achievements of the empire. It was a testimony to their strength and their power, to the spread of their kingdom, that they maintained peace among the nations. It was a fragile peace, to be sure. But they saw that as an emblem, as a testimony of their strength. And here in these words, as they would have been, as they would have heard these words at first, that they would have been made to understand that peace is not something that is humanly attainable in terms of its stability and its reality. God creates a situation of peace and he removes a situation of peace according to his sovereign purposes. And the reminder is, is that we never then are to put our hope in a nation. We never are to put our hope in a human institution, but that we live and yield and submit under God's mighty hand and God's mighty purposes. We remember in Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 through 21, and I paraphrase, he causes a nation to rise, he causes a nation to fall. It's the Lord who does all these things. And so we just need to remember as we go through this, even as Christians, that peace will not ultimately come while we hope for it, while we pray for the peace of Israel, it's said, while we work for those things in our own nation and context. Peace will not come until Christ returns and establishes peace on the earth. He is the Prince of Peace. And I want you to notice as well up front, and I'll mention this again, Later, But God's sovereignty then extends to the evil actions of men, not as the cause of that evil, but as the ruler of it. As the one who directs it towards his purposes, who uses it to accomplish his purposes. So in one sense, as one writer wrote, the violence is, I quote, human depravity come full circle. In another sense, it is the sovereign purposes of God through the wickedness of men in which he is unleashing his judgments in a unique way by giving leeway to the, what is already in the heart of man and the heart of Satan. Remember, Jesus said to the leaders, you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, and they want to murder, and they ultimately murdered the Son of God. It says of Romans 3, when he talks about in summary form the condition of man's fallenness, and he says they're quick to shed blood. They're swift to run to destruction. Misery is in their path. Violence is in their path. And so that's what's shown here. It's restrained, beloved. We need to remind ourselves, not because of any human goodness, but because of the common grace of God for his purposes. We need to remember that. 
It's not human goodness that establishes any sense of justice or righteousness or what is good. It is the common grace of God that withholds and restrains to some measure what would naturally be in hearts, man, what is naturally in man's heart, and that is evil and violent. Here he's removing that restraint. He's removing that common grace. And it is then this entry into the first part, as well as with the first word, what Jesus anticipated in Matthew 24, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but these are only the beginning of birth pains. That's pretty sobering in light of the events of the 20th century, which have been, as is often recognized, some of the most bloody in human history. The amount of deaths, both by war, certainly disease is included in that, but primarily through war, what is known as democide, and that is the kind of death that comes through evil governments, through evil human institutions. The number is in the tens of millions. It's massive. But those are only a, a foreshadowing of what's to come at the end of the age. And so this is the second seal. Let's note the third one a little bit more quickly with this. The third seal, he says, and he broke the third seal and... In breaking the third seal, he heard the creature call forth another horse, and this was a black horse. He who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. So what does this mean? Again, it's the repetition of the same for formula, the, the seal broken, the, one of the living creatures calling forth a horse and its rider. It comes. Here it is a black horse. The color black emphasizes most likely the idea of mourning and sorrow, of pain and anguish that comes from the events of the previous horse and the suffering. And the rider himself here now is holding something in his hand as the attention again turns to the rider and he has a pair of scales in his hand. So if you want to get a picture of this, the kind of scale he's talking about would be like a something you know, parallel here and then a, like a wood piece hanging in the balance with two plates on either side. You know, it's a scale, you weigh it, like it tips one way or the other depending on weight. That's the picture here. That's the kind of scale that he's talking about. And so he's holding it in his hand, and as he draws our attention to this object in his hand, he then turns us away and causes us to hear and pay attention to a voice that he says is coming, in verse 6, in the center of the four living creatures. Now, this is interesting because here it's not coming from the living creature. It's unique to this horse. It's coming from the midst of the four living creatures. Who is the, whose voice is this? Well, if we go back to the beginning of the vision, which is the context of everything he's talking about here, in chapter 4, verse 2, you have the throne of God that is surrounded by the living creatures, so it's in the middle. You come into chapter 5, it is the Lamb who is standing at the right hand of the throne, the right hand of the Father. But by verse 6 of chapter 5, it is the Lamb who is standing in the midst of the four living creatures and of the elders. So most likely here, we are to understand this as the voice of God generally, but probably the Lamb specifically. And the point of mentioning that is again to emphasize the fact that this is a sovereign judgment of God. The Lamb is calling forth these things. He is the executor of divine judgment. And what is the judgment? Well, he says, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. What is he talking about here? 
Well, the first thing to notice is that the items that he mentions, wheat, barley, and even oil and wine, are staples of diet, of survival in the ancient world. Certainly of them uh, who are hearing and reading this letter, they were the things people lived on. They were the main crops of Palestine, and again, throughout that region, we won't go and look at these passages, but it's uh, it's these four items that are specifically mentioned throughout the Old Testament as, as the staples of the life of God's people and of people in that region of the world. The prices, second thing to notice, indicate incredible inflation due to scarcity, rations of food being measured and sold at exorbitant prices, at exorbitant prices. Again, for time's sake, we're not going to go there, but you can jot down in the margin Leviticus chapter 26, verse 26, and Ezekiel chapter 4, 16 through 17, that, that talks about the severity of a famine by food having to be rationed out, having to be carefully measured so that none would go to waste. A denarius was, as you're probably familiar with, the typical wage of a day laborer. That's pretty well established. Matthew 22 mentions that. You know, denarius, the laborers went out and they all received a denarius at the end of the day. That was, that was a pretty standard day's wage for labor in that agricultural uh, culture and society. But what is significant here then is he's saying that the measures here that are given are essentially, when he says a quart of wheat, what would be accepted as what one needs of survival, a single individual for a day. And that he made three, three quarts of barley for a denarius would be recognized as what of the less nutrition and cheaper barley could be used to sustain a small family for a day. So essentially what the idea here is, is of the kind of suffering of famine in this sense, in which only the smallest and most necessary amount of food can be purchased by a full day's labor, leaving nothing left over for anything else. No family, no other necessities, basically working all day long merely to have enough food to survive for one day. And not even the best food if you have a family, the barley. Again, cheaper and not as nutritious and so forth. One noted this on these prices based on an understanding of food prices in that context. That, these, that this, this situation represents, and I quote, uh, prices that are, quote, with, with up to 16 times higher than usual. Up to 16 times higher than the usual price. Massive inflation. Massive cost just for daily survival. Harsh, harsh conditions. Notice what he says at the end, however. Pay attention to this. He says, but do not damage the oil and the wine. Do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, this statement has elicited a variety of interpretations and explanations. Let me just give them. We're not going to spend time. Some say it's, it's a picture of the protection of Christians because oil and wine picture, uh, picture sacramental elements. And so he must be talking about Christians. But to say the least, that's reading a lot into the text and is not what you would get out of it. Others say it's the conditions of the seas of Jerusalem. And of course, those who, are, those who want to see all of these things is fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The problem with that is that it requires the event to have already taken place and the events here of a global significance and spread. They're not localized. It's not limited to the Jews. 
A more plausible explanation here is that God is actually lessening the severity. Now, this is of the, of the famine. Now, this is possible because one common element of famine is that when wheat and barley and those kind of crops were no longer able to be grown and sustain the people, that the olive trees and the vineyards were still able to produce fruit because the roots go much deeper and so they weren't as immediately affected. And so sometimes in the midst of famine, while wheat and barley were no longer available, wine and oil would be available and to be sustained on. But they didn't have the nutrition. You can't live on those things. And so it didn't really help uh, many people. Others say, and this is probably the most likely, is that this is a statement that is meant to highlight the disparity between the very rich and the very poor. And partly how that would work out is this, is that in famine, again, the crops that would grow are the crops of oil and wine. These were commodities that could be traded at high prices and that could be sold. And so while many are languishing in hunger and unable to get the basic necessities of life, those who were already wealthy and had these crops are able to keep increasing in their wealth and their sustenance. And so it it shows most likely this great disparity and even the oppression that could come from that. And there may even be an indication of this at the very end when he's talking about the decadence of the kingdom to come. I won't read the whole passage, but he says this, talking about the things that are traded of the merchants of the earth in verse 11 and verse 13 says, and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. So there's a picture of this affluence and this sort of egregious display of wealth while there's set in contrast to suffering and slaves and those who are degraded to the lowest point in life. So the rich are abusers. And this is what Jesus said. The Gentiles lorded over them, right? And so probably here is then a picture of that kind of disparity that only adds to the oppression and the misery of those who are suffering. One said of this, there are those who will not be denied the right of self-indulgence even in time of famine. And it's even possible and likely that we should see here that this famine is coming and the scarcity of food that's directly related to the presence of violence and war that is spreading uh, throughout the world. And that's common, again, of course, in war and battle, one of the strategies of an enemy is to cut off food supplies, right? To cut off the ability for an army and a nation to sustain themselves. We see that again, even in our present time. Y'all are very familiar that at the outbreak of the war in Ukraine, of Russia against Ukraine, what was put in jeopardy is an area of land that apparently produces 40% of the world's wheat. Already at the beginning, over a year ago, the prices in Africa, it is said, were raised 45%, it may be higher now, the cost of wheat, and some areas weren't able to get it at all, or it was held as a weapon over them. In other words, we see this now. Here it's just going to be in this time at an intensified level, intensified level. So the picture is of increasing suffering through the wickedness of men, but under the sovereign hand of God. Let's note the fourth horse. And then the lamb broke the fourth seal, and I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. And on him sat, or the horse that came was an ashen horse. And the one who sat on it had the name of death. An ashen horse. The color actually 
if you have an ASV or American Standard or an ESV, it says pale. The, the literal description of this term would be like a pale, a light yellow green. Sometimes it's compared to the light green of plants and, and plant life. So it's really a pale green. Some describe it as a sickly green. One lexicon, picking up on the nuance of this term in this particular verse, says this. It gives this description, quote, it's a pale greenish, and in parentheses, evidently regarded as a typical of a coarse corpse, since the color is used as a symbol of death. So you can think of a deathly, pale, grotesque, sort of repulsive kind of green here, picturing death and disease, suffering. And then, of course, that's made explicit by the personified name of the one who sits upon it. He's given the name of death. Of death, And this really then becomes a culmination, sort of the, the end, the, the final suffering of these four horses is that this massive death that's going to take place, even as he said, over a quarter of the earth. And notice there's no mention of anything in his hands as with the previous writers. Here it is only a personified description of the darkness of the results of his work, namely that he will bring death. And this was, of course, again, granted to him by the one who is unleashing these judgments. And this would go again and point us to Christ. If you'll remember back in chapter 1, verse 18, of the origin of this vision, is Christ said he holds what in his hand? Death and Hades. Death and Hades. The Son of God, whose eyes are like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished brawn, he is the one... Later, or previously described as the living one, and he says, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades, which is to say I have authority over both. Authority over both. And again, notice the significance of this. The scope of it is a quarter of the earth. A quarter of the earth. If we're at about 9 billion people, roughly now, or over 8 billion people, then that means we're talking about at least 2 billion people who are impacted by this, who die, over 2 billion now. It was given to him to, ha to execute this death through a variety of means. He says through the sword, through famine, through pestilence. Actually, interestingly, is the same term in the original as death, but it's most often translated as pestilence, and it has the idea of disease and destruction, dis destroying kind of disease that kills and by the wild beast of the earth, which shows the lack of protection in cities and which could come from the devastation of a war and displaced people, very possibly. Interestingly, these three things or these four things are singled out in the Old Testament of God's judgment against his people, Israel, for their covenant unfaithfulness. Let me give you just one example. In the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 5, believe. Ezekiel chapter 5, and God unloading and describing the justice that he will bring against his people. He tells them, excuse me, Ezekiel 14. He tells them of these very, these very calamities that are to come to them. He says, For thus says the Lord, verse 21. How much more will I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem? Sword, famine, wild beast, 
and plague to cut off man and beast from it. And that's repeated in other places. It's the severity of God's judgment. It is a devastating. It is comprehensive. Where are you going to run? To the wilderness to find safety? You'll be destroyed by animals. Run to the city, but it's going to be overrun with the sword. Find some isolated place, but you cannot escape the famine. Try to run away, and yet the pestilence will overtake you, and you'll die. And so it's a really a grievous, grievous picture. But it gets even worse. What does he say in the middle of verse 8? On him sat death that will come by those means. But then he says, and Hades was following with him or following after him. Was following after him. What is Hades? Well, we've talked about this a little bit before. Hades is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Sheol. And Sheol is a somewhat of a vague kind of a general concept in the Old Testament. It's really the afterworld, the place of the dead. It's, it's used of both the righteous and the wicked. As a matter of fact, that translation, if you'll remember in Acts chapter 2, it said that, that Christ, that the, the Messiah was in Hades. There he's just talking about the place of the dead, that he was actually dead. During the intertestinal period, there developed the idea that there were really these two compartments in Sheol, one for the righteous and one for the wicked. And by the time we come into the New Testament, it's almost primarily used as a reference to the place of the wicked where the damned and where the judged are held until the time of their final judgment. And so that is, except for a few exceptions, almost exclusively how it's used in the Old Testament. You'll think of just one example of Luke chapter 16 of the, of the man, the poor man, or the rich man who was in Hades. He said that just could, could a drop of water be brought to me from my tongue. And so what he's saying here, the devastation then of this is not only will death come, but it's going to come in massive numbers, and it is massive numbers who will be immediately taken to the place of judgment, to a place of suffering awaiting the final day and the, the final suffering that will come about after the great white throne. So what is the picture here? It's not a pretty one. It is to say that as God wraps up and brings and starts unleashing his judgments on the world and is sovereignly orchestrating the destruction, the suffering that comes through the wickedness of man, that there will be this ever-increasing reality of suffering. Now let me just note then just a few observations that call for a response as we leave it at that point. How are we then as Christians to receive this? This actually is meant, if you're a believer in Christ, to be an encouragement. A sadness, but also an encouragement. Let's consider how. First, by just observing this, that the devastation and horror that comes as a result of human sin shows the reality and the true face of sin unhindered. Like there's not some new condition created in the heart of men that brings about these conditions. Do you understand? It is what is in the heart of man. The fact that God restrains it and that there's common grace is God's common grace. It is his mercy in the variety of ways that he does that. But if it were not for that restraint, this is what we'd be living through right now. Worse. And so the first thing to observe is this is the real face of human sin. So any idea of human goodness needs to be eradicated from our minds. It's human depravity and the mercy of God that is the 
that defines reality. So this is who we really are. As we've seen paraded again before our eyes throughout the annals of history and in recent days. Secondly, it shows then, we observe, that the severity of God's judgment against sin highlights his anger over this rebellion and rebellious and corrupt condition of man. One says this, it shows the resolute anger of heaven toward the sin and rebellion of man. It has a double effect too. It has a double effect of showing God's justice in the judgment of man. As the sin of man is allowed to unfold, then there can be no question of God's justice in bringing to account such rebellion and such wickedness. We see indications of this in statements, and we've mentioned this before under Theology of Judgment, in which it says the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, there's a destruction that God was going to bring among the people, but he wanted to let that sin run its course for many divine purposes, many unknown to us, but one being the justice of his judgment when he did bring it. But this was a people who was ripe to be destroyed and judged. And so it is with the earth, and so it is with man now. How much longer can God tolerate the absolute blasphemy against his name to say that his very created order is meaningless and foolishness and a mirage? There is no male and female. There is no husband and wife with order in the relationship. Sex is for nothing more than your own pleasure, regardless of what harm it brings on others and the lives that you serve. Marriage is unnecessary, a relic of the past that needs to be eradicated. Children are mere pawns and ideologies where we can take four-year-olds and put them on hormone drugs and celebrate that as good where we attack the very created order of the rights of parents to instruct and direct their children in what is right and good. How much longer can God tolerate that? How much longer? And so when God does bring his judgment, it is no surprise. He's not bringing his judgment on good people. He's bringing his judgment on those who have rejected him, as we read earlier, who hate the light because the light exposes their deeds as evil. It's no mystery that as wickedness increases, hatred against Christians increases. Why? Because that's the sole voice in the light of the world that says that's sin and that you need to are held accountable. And so God's judgment is just. As these sins unfold and the heart of man is revealed, he is just. But we would remember this. The greatest demonstration, both of the ugliness of sin and the character of God, isn't in the devastation that will come upon the earth and of men. Where is it? It's at the cross. It's at the cross. You want to know what God thinks of human sin and how bad it is? We look to the cross. You want to know the depth of grace? You look to the cross. On the cross is the bloodied and violent an abused son of God hanging there for the sin of man. And not only that, but sweating drops of blood as he anticipates what he experienced at the end of which was the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is human sin. There. It's also divine mercy and sovereign grace. One noted this in reference to this point. It says, by pouring out his wrath on the sin-bearing son, 
God showed how resolute is his hatred toward all evil. Therefore, a world that rejects Jesus and scorns his atoning death should expect nothing less than judgment from heaven. I was in a recent conversation just this week of a man. He's from AA, actually. And I, the dividing line in the conversation, that the point he couldn't get over as we were talking about some of these things, uh, was hell. How could a loving God send people to hell? How could that happen? We hear that a lot, don't we? That was the line that couldn't be crossed as it is with many. Let me suggest to you, as many of you know, that God's love will never be understood by minimizing his hatred of sin. Never. Never by minimizing a holy reaction to sin will the love of God be understood and the cross be understood. Never when we minimize the implications of infinite holiness and majesty against the proud rebellion of men will we understand the cross and what has taken place. It's only in light of that that we can grasp and begin to grasp the mercy and the grace that is extended by God by holding up his crucified son to the world and says, find life in him. By holding up the resurrected son and says, run to him for refuge and I will receive you. That's an understanding of grace. That is the mercy of God. And so these judgments then really are provide us not only with that picture, but of the bigger picture of what God is accomplishing through it. One noted this, and this is what we'll end. These judgments are birth pains, which means that they are more than angry retribution. They are a part of the necessary process that will bring forth new life, new birth. What is the end of the judgment? The new heavens and the new earth. Where his glory is, where righteousness dwells, our eternal home, and resurrected and glorified bodies. So yes, judgment is coming, but the end of that is to create a world of infinite beauty and glory and joy and happiness for those who have found refuge in Christ, for those who have run to him. And that is available to all, everyone, who will humble themselves before God. And it's what we remember in the table this morning. So let's pray, and then the men will come forward and come back and play a message. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace. We thank you that you who are holy beyond what we can fathom. Though we see pictures of it in the life of your servant Isaiah, a righteous man who could yet do nothing but proclaim the rightness of his own damnation in your presence. And what did you do? You took a coal and you punched his tongue and you said his iniquity has been atoned for. How glorious it is to know that that atonement came in what we see with even greater fullness and clarity in you, our Lord Jesus Christ, who laid down your life for us, who laid it down that you might take it up again and offer to all men the reality of forgiveness of sins and the hope of heaven and reconciliation with God. So thank you for your mercy and thank you for your grace. May we ever more learn and have a heart of worship in light of this. And help us even now as we take this table to remember that grace and our trust in you. And we pray these things in your name, Jesus Christ.